thank you all for coming out uh, this afternoon. And I was trying to give it a, another minute. We had originally scheduled this at another building, so hopefully some people will be some people will probably be trickling in. My name is Jared Ortiz. I teach Catholic theology in the religion department, and I'm the director of the St. Benedict Forum. For those of you who don't know, the St. Benedict Forum is the Catholic intellectual and spiritual institute that serves Hope College. We're a ministry of the local Catholic Church, St. Francis de Sales. Our beloved pastor is here in the audience. Wonderful. If you need to go to confession, actually, it's uh, right here. Uh, and our mission at St. Benedict Forum is to bring a distinctly Catholic voice to the Hope College conversation. And we're very pleased to bring Duncan Stroik to Hope today. I'd like to thank all of our co-sponsors who made this event possible, the Religion Department, the Art and Art History Department, the Sociology and Social Work Department, Markets and Morality, and the Our Sunday Visitor Institute. From the Gothic chapel behind me, with its lovely stained glass, to the imposing and dignified Romanesque Graves Hall where we now sit, to the clean Dutch lines of Lubbers Hall, we at Hope College are blessed to live and work on a beautiful campus. And we at Hope are in a good position to engage Professor Stroik, who's a practicing architect a professor of architecture at the University of Notre Dame, and a designer of beautiful buildings. <clears throat> I remember my excitement when I first discovered Professor Stroik's work many years ago. I don't actually know terribly much about architecture, but I recall being incredibly moved by the images of the churches he built. They were simple, elegant, reverent, traditional without being reactionary or sentimental. But most of all, what struck me was that they were beautiful, and it was clear that their beauty was meant to lift our minds and hearts to God. His beautiful churches are matched by his beautiful prose, and you can read his many fine articles in various journals and magazines but particularly in the one that he edits, right here, available for free in the back of the room. Please pick one up, called Sacred Architecture, a really fine journal. And you can also pick up his lovely book, Church Building as a Sacred Place, Beauty, Transcendence, and the Eternal, and these are also on sale in the back. This afternoon, Professor Stroik will give a lecture entitled Architecture for the Poor, Please help me welcome Professor Duncan Stroik. Thank you so much for coming out today. It's an honor to be here, and uh, I hope this will be a good talk for you. Um, I'm honored, uh, Jared, to invite me and for the St. Benedict Forum. And uh, wow, you have a beautiful campus. Did you know that? I bet most of the students here, who, who, none of you chose this college because of the campus, right? Did anybody do that? No, no, no. Uh, fantastic place and um, beautiful buildings. And um, yeah, you probably learned a few things too. Um, so I'm supposed to talk about architecture for the poor which is a subject I'm very interested in uh, this, these days, and I know you are too. Um, there's good reason at Hope to, to think about the poor and good things like that. And I guess I'm gonna ask for the lights and for the images. And I start out with this because there are, for many of us, when you think of architecture for the poor, you might think of the building on the left. Looks like a building for the poor. Simple, concrete, um, low, not too much gaudy or fancy in it. Um, and what about the building on the right? Well, believe it or not, that one was built by the poor, the Irish in New York. So I'm actually showing you the two largest 
Catholic cathedrals in the U.S. and built by the people of those regions, Los Angeles on the left and um, Ireland, I mean New York on the right. And so two different ideas about what is the architecture for the poor. Now, is the one on the left cheap? I don't know, do you consider 200, 250 million dollars cheap? Now, if you do, it's pretty cheap. It's cheaper than the football stadium we're building at Notre Dame right now, but um, it's still a lot of money, right? And uh, the one on the right, actually, uh, we don't know how much it would cost to build today. It would probably cost more than that, but uh, they just restored it, fortunately. Uh, and of course, um, had a recent visitor there. So I do want to laud you at Hope College for all the good things that you do in serving the poor, in serving the world. That's part of our role as Christians to develop ourselves, to come here and study, but also to go out, to give back, right? And um, I was, uh, I was um, uh, thinking, uh, can you even see this? This is from your website, but it talks on the left about, oh yeah, immersion. And I thought, wow, that's a new uh, Calvinist idea, immersion? What they do an immersion here for? But then I realized it was serving in the city immersion uh, event. So, um, but anyway, it's great what you do here, and it's great how you go out and serve the poor, and I'm sure you would like to do architecture for the poor. Now, I come from a place like this, and most people think this is our motto. Um, it's actually, this is the motto, and you may see at the middle of it, it's all in Latin or some dead language. Um, you may see in the middle of it, the motto is Vita Dulcedo Spes. Anybody know what that means? Vita Dulcedo Spes? Somebody knows. Vita, our life. Dulcedo, our sweetness. And space, our hope. Yeah, our life, our sweetness, and our hope. And of course, I want to emphasize the hope because that's something we share in common uh, with Hope College and Notre Dame. We both have Spes in our name. And um, I saw also, there's this neat big metal thing out here in front that somebody came and they to the harbor and they dropped it off and they carted it up here and put it on the green. Do you know what that is? What is that? That anchor? What's the anchor for? Why is there an anchor in front of this building? Hope. It's a symbol of hope. And uh, you see at Notre Dame they have the cross in the water, which is also implying the anchor because that is the symbol space, the symbol of the Holy Cross order that founded our place. At any rate, so we both have hope in common. We just have a few more words, but hope's pretty good space. And uh, of course, when we think about the poor um, in the Catholic world, we uh, think about the great uh, impact that the Bishop of Rome, uh, Pope Francis I, first, yeah, right, Duncan, Pope Francis has had on us in, in, in getting us to think about serving the poor. And he has actually said, I want a church for the poor. And so I kept thinking, well, if he wants a church for the poor, what if he wanted an architecture for the poor? What would that be? So what has Pope Francis done? Um, he has a background in Argentina of going out to the barrios, working with the poor, the indigent, the un unwed mothers, and helping them out. Um, and since he's been uh, Pope, a couple of things he's done, you can see on the left is uh, some friends that were kind of connected to the homeless community said, you know, we really don't need this, we really don't need that, there's plenty of soup kitchens, but what we really could use is a good shower once in a while. So now at the Vatican, the Pope built these showers um, on the left. Well, the showers aren't there, but they're behind there somewhere. And then um, the other thing that he's recently built is a homeless shelter at the Vatican. So he's uh, uh, a great hero for serving the poor and a church for the poor. Um, of course, his name is Francis, and he takes great inspiration of someone that uh, a lot of us maybe know about, but maybe it's worth being reminded of is St. Francis of Assisi. And here we have Pope Francis praying in front of Francis's tomb, which is a Catholic thing that we like to do is to pray next to where holy people are buried. It's kind of a funny idea, but it started back around the year 33. Um, or maybe a little bit after that, but at any rate, um, uh, so there he is, and, and of course th this is his namesake, 
from Assisi who was an educated, well-off gent, um, uh, also a knight errant who had a conversion and uh, threw off his clothes and gave them to the poor and so on. And a couple of images that are architectural, architectural uh, on the left. You know the one on the left, image on the left? This is a famous image of Giotto of a, of a scene, really one of the great moments of Francis's conversion. You, you really can't say he had one moment of conversion because it was a life of conversion, but do you know this moment? He's in the little church of San Damiano, which had fallen down, and he's praying there in front of the crucifix, an image of Christ in the crucifix, and suddenly the Christ speaks to him and says, Francis, I want you to rebuild my church. So he then takes that as a word from God, and he does. And he physically, with his own bare hands, rebuilds this little church. It's probably about as big as this room, stone church, nothing fancy on the outside, and it has a vaulted ceiling. And he physically rebuilds it. Eventually, some people come and help him, and eventually this is the beginning of a community that someday later when they build another, rebuild another little chapel will become what we call the Franciscans. So you see the architectural image of rebuild my church. Um, so he's physically rebuilding the church building, okay? Now, obviously, God meant him to also rebuild the church, the whole church, right? And, um, and that's what we see here. We see the Pope, Pope Innocent III, having a, a dream, and he sees a little man holding up the Cathedral of St. John Lateran. Now, who is that little man? Yeah, St. Francis. He sees in his dream the building falling down, which is symbolic, of the church body falling down, and Francis is helping to hold it up. So these are some architectural aspects of St. Francis's life, which is worth remembering today as we think about, in history, of the great people that have served the poor, he's certainly near the top, right? So we also see what he did um, for the, the, say, the bodily side and the architectural side. So. What is the architectural corollary of St. Francis of Assisi's holy poverty? Is it the shanty towns of the third world? Or is it stylish minimalism of the first world condominiums? When we build churches, schools, and soup kitchens, should they be cheap or should they at least look cheap? Not if St. Francis was doing it. And this, do you know these buildings on the left? This is a famous building in Florence. Anybody know that? Uh, this is the Foundling Hospital. What would be a Foundling Hospital? Yeah, for abandoned children, babies, abandoned babies, orphans. Actually, they're not necessarily orphans. They're abandoned babies. We can't afford uh, this little baby, and so we give them to this, uh, this orphanage, and they will bring him or her up. And so... Actually, the symbols up there are of little babies being given to the family hospital. On the right, this is, this is Torino, Turin. Do you know this place? Famous shrine, and it's built by another fellow who's big into architecture and into the poor. St. John Bosco, uh, 19th century saint, who his whole life started out serving uh, the, the orphan boys or the teenage boys that were kind of in trouble and giving them a home and helping to convert them. And so he served the poorest of the poor and educated them and gave them a craft usually and then um, got them into college and you know go to MBA school. And then, no, and then, um, and at the same time he built this great uh, shrine. So, there is a type of Catholic building that is built to last with a sense of beauty. Some would question why we should spend great sums of money on architecture, when what the poor really need are buildings that meet their functional needs. And yet, if we follow Mother Teresa, St. Francis, and other great saints, to serve the poor means serving not only their material needs, but their spiritual needs as well. Good architecture should do both. It provides buildings and rooms for people to live in, study in, and work in while doing it in a way that can inspire. This is another building type that's very interesting. I happen to be going here over fall break. Do you know this town? Venice, yeah. 
And uh, do you know these buildings? Uh, Lusitele and La Pieta. La Pieta is famous for being the home of the composer, Four Seasons, Vivaldi. And uh, he was the composer in residence, priest and composer in residence, and he wrote music for the choir, which was a double choir of young girls. So these were both homes for young girls to keep them out of trouble, girls without money, to keep them out of trouble until they could get to a point where they could get married or become nuns. That was the two options in those days, but to keep them out of trouble because the third option isn't so good, okay? And so Vivaldi's church and Lusitelli, both places that took in young girls, they had a beautiful church at the center. The girls learned to sing. They were great choirs. Lusitelli, um, the Pieta was a place where every, anyone that cared about music would come to on certain, certain uh, liturgies because these ladies were like, like angels. They probably looked like angels too, but their voices is what I mean. And they would come and listen to them singing. So this is another type that we have done in the past to serve. And they're not, uh, uh, they're, they're, they're buildings that can inspire. So do the poor need beauty? Yes, maybe even more than other people do. The poor need beauty to ennoble them, to raise them up out of the morass of this fallen world. For many, their existing surroundings may not inspire them. So beautiful, durable architecture can have a salutary effect. We see the desire for beauty and tradition expressed in the parishes and schools built by poor immigrants in the previous centuries. This happens to be uh, uh, one of the many Polish <coughs> churches in Chicago. And there are many of these, and uh, huge numbers of people were there, but very, very poor working uh, people, and they, they built these amazing buildings. Um, their own houses may have been simple, but their communal home sought to be a work of art full of iconography and richness. And again, we're surrounded by beautiful buildings here at Hope College, uh, this beautiful uh, building down the street, and of course, your chapel next door. And this, I like to compare this, uh, one of the early hospitals in Rome and to uh, a more recent hospital. When we welcome them to the homeless shelter, the school, the soup kitchen, the medical clinic, the pregnancy center, or the unwed mother's home, we welcome them to our house. Nothing less than the best is acceptable, right? For your guests, don't you give them the best? Don't you try to? I mean, whatever you have. You give them food. You give them extra food. You, I remember going to uh, Warsaw, uh, Krakow in Poland during communism. These people had nothing. I was a rich guy coming from America. They had nothing, and yet they made the finest food they could out of plums and water and a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and they just gave. It's, it's hospitality, the poor hospital, hosp being hospitable to someone from the U.S. Crazy idea. We roll out the red carpet for them since we believe, as you did it to the least of my brethren, you did it to me. Same idea, schools, old and new. Uh, we still care about schools, we still build them well, but it's interesting if you look at college campuses, and I don't know your architecture that well here, but certainly there's been a revival across the country of building nicer, better, traditional buildings for on our campuses in recent years, but that hasn't trickled down to our high schools and our elementary schools. We used to build high schools and elementary schools of the quality or closer to the quality of our college. I hope that that will eventually trickle down. Uh, and housing, quality housing. Some years ago, my students designed and built a house for Habitat for Humanity right on Notre Dame Avenue, right near the campus. One of the leaders of the organization visited the house and was shocked, shocked, shocked to see brickwork below the front porch, which matched the older houses in the neighborhood. He said, you can't make this house nicer than the other Habitat homes. You will make the other owners jealous. In his view, the poor deserved only the lowest common denominator. The house was meant not so much to beautify or dignify the occupants, but only to provide for their material needs. In a small way, I would like to think that our students were unwittingly imitating Dorothy Day, who, do you know the story? She gave a diamond ring to a bag lady. Do you know the story? It's a great story. And she was questioned by her staff at the Catholic Worker House. And they said, wouldn't it have been better to sell the ring and use the money for the poor? And Dorothy said to them, do you suppose that God created diamonds only for the rich? 
Do the poor need a different or lesser architecture than other Americans? They too can feel the solidity of brickwork, the generosity of a porch, the human scale of a baseboard and a cornice. Look at this fantastic room we're in right now with this beautiful paneling, stained glass. The wood work is really fantastic, by the way. And these trusses, wow, I'd love to do trusses like that. <coughs> with these funny little metal things crossing because the walls want to go like that. <coughs> and that beautiful ceiling. Don't the poor also feel these things? Don't they also appreciate the quality of natural materials? Likewise, they too are affected by mechanistic facades and oppressive interiors that do not elevate the spirit. So this is the famous Pruitt-Igo in St. Louis, and this is what we thought the way the poor should be housed in the 50s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and we're getting out of it. We're starting to get out of it in the 90s. And this is a great housing uh, project. And you can see what the neighborhood was like before. See that? Nice low-scale tenements, probably, you know, probably crummy houses, but single-family homes, townhouses, apartment buildings, probably falling apart, but more at a human scale. And we said, no, what they need is this, brave new world. Hired a famous architect, same guy who designed the World Trade Center, um, and uh, did this fantastic building, and all kinds of uh, books have been written about this, but it became excuse me, hellhole in a horrible place to live and just fostered and festered the problems that were in that neighborhood already. They were just increased. They were exacerbated. It was like a fire was lit. More muggings, more uh, uh, violence, more, you know. <clears throat> so fortunately, the people of St. Louis were not happy about this and the residents were not happy about this. So I think within 25, 30 years of it being built, they did this. Who would I go when? But meanwhile, during that 20 years, there were families and individuals that had to live in that place. And, um, and that's how we used to, we used to house the poor. Low-income housing is usually a bad word, right? It's usually considered a bad thing. So we have to rethink those ideas. We all know that the poor need food and clothing decent education and good jobs, but what about their spiritual and cultural needs? Can a church building serve the poor spiritually through the material? It's a very expensive proposition, but I would suggest the answer is yes, which leads us to the question, how do we design a church for the poor? So do you see what I was doing? I was trying to talk about architecture for the poor, and now we're going into church, because it's not just churches, it's, it's the whole gamut. But now I'm going to focus on the church building. Please first consider what a church for the poor is not. And this is a very famous building. Do you know this? This is a brand new monastery in Czechoslovakia by a fancy English architect. Cost lots and lots of money, multi-millions. What a church for the poor is not. It is not a church for ascetic monks who take a vow of poverty spend their days in prayer, and prefer the simple beauty of the cloister to the richness and chaos of the world. This is not what the poor need. Really? Why not? Aren't they? These guys have a vow of poverty. What about people that are already in poverty? As the priest who married me said, you know, when you get married, you take a vow of poverty. <laughs> <clears throat> On the contrary, a church for the poor should be seen as a place for full-blooded lay people who need to be drawn into the building through material and tactile means. It is a respite from the world that offers a glimpse of the heavenly Jerusalem to all of those living in Nineveh. A church for the poor does not have paintings of abstract or ugly figures, but is full of beautiful images of holy men and women who overcame their sinfulness to draw close to God. Even more important, a church for the poor shows the poor their mother who comforts them and their God who forgives. A church for the poor is full of signs, symbols, and sacraments, outward signs of inward grace. 
It cannot be a place where the sacrament of salvation is hidden away, for it should be raised up like Christ on the cross, offering his body for our healing. A house for the poor should not be a modernist structure inspired by the machine. For the poor are surrounded and even enslaved by the machine and the technological. And this idea was reinforced to me uh, of a recent book I read on um, Catholic churches in England after the war, after World War II. And the argument at the time, this is the late 40s, early 50s, was the worker, which is a new creation, the worker, somebody who works in a factory, they need to have, their factories look like factories, right? So they're workers, right? They're not like you and me, they're workers. So when they leave the factory, they should come home to something that looks like a factory because they're workers. And then when they go on Sunday to worship, their building should look like a factory. This is what the architects pulled, pulled over us and we bought it and we built those, those cities and those villages for the workers in England and the churches all in the name of the worker. They're a different kind of man. They have different needs, and it's just the minimal. Oh, what horrible places to live. It's one thing to work in a factory, but please let me live in a house. It's fine to work at a, at a, at a machine, but please, when I go to church, let me pray before an image, not a machine. <clears throat> so... A church for the poor is rather a building inspired by the human body, the new Adam, the new Adam, and the richness of his creation. Those whose lives may touch on angst and suffering do not need a contorted building exhibiting disharmony and atonality. I mean, the concept of the poor and the needy is that they have needs and that their lives are difficult. So why would we build a building like this for them to worship in? Instead, they need an architecture of healing, which through proportions, materials, and spiritual light brings joy to the heart. And I show this image of a shrine, the shrine for Our Lady of Guadalupe in Wisconsin, where very pop, the most popular side altar is, do you know this, do you know this guy on the left? Most patron saint of cancer sufferers, St. Peregrine who was healed, he all too was praying in front of Christ and Christ reached down and touched him and healed him. So this is a very popular shrine to go and pray for your loved ones who are suffering from various diseases, but especially the great modern disease of cancer. And then on the right, we have all of the uh, crutches uh, at the shrine of um, St. Joseph, St. Joseph, St. Joe up in uh, Montreal, uh, people have been healed. So we need an architecture of healing. The theater church, which has been so popular in the 80s and 90s, I would suggest that a church that is welcoming to those in the state of poverty should not be a theater church, where when you go into it, you're on stage. The, the indigent, the poor, are not necessarily the people that want to sit in the front rows. The um, gangbanger, the drug dealer, if you're going to get them to come to church, they're not going to sit in the front, and they don't want to sit looking at all these other people. But they can sit in the back, in the shadows, um, if they can have a place of their own, if they can even stand in the lobby. I've been to Hispanic churches where all the young men come to church. They don't go to my church. But the young men come to church, and they stand outside. But they're there. Whereas in my church, young men just don't go. They don't need to go. they got their own car. they got things to do. So we need to make it possible for the poor and those in need to feel welcome, and that doesn't mean making them sit up front or hold hands or turn on the lights or talk or what have you. Their dignity is respected by allowing them to sit where they want, even if that means in the back or in a side chapel. The lighting cannot be so bright that once deficiencies are revealed to others, there should be a place of prayer for shadow. shadow. And then this is a tough one, because, but it's real. A church for the poor is not hidden away in the suburbs or on a highway where it may never be seen and is difficult to get to. If we think about all the great religious movements that wanted to impact the poor, you go to them. Uh, you don't bring them to you. 
and uh, the history, especially of the Franciscans, Dominicans, um, Carmelites, and then the Jesuits was always building in the inner cities. And they did such a good job in serving the poor that now those neighborhoods are very nice. They became very nice, but their goal was to go where it was really tough. The church building should be placed where the poor are and, in, and also in prominent places like downtowns or city parks where the poor can sometimes get to. Think of the great cathedrals in our great downtowns, great cities. The poor go there, they're very comfortable, the churches are open all day. They can get to uh, uh, St. Patrick's in New York City and they're welcome. A church for the poor does not close its school just because it is under-enrolled or in financial difficulty. This is one of the most bothersome things to me. In the short term, it makes no sense to keep these church schools open in inner cities in the short term, right? It makes no financial sense. And the church is all about making financial sense, right? That's what Jesus said. <laughs> it's probably one of the Ten Commandments, too. It's like, well, what are we doing this for? Well, we've got to be financially, you know. So... Caritas, which is that other word, space, caritas, fides. Caritas understands that service to those in need is not optional, nor is it meant to be cheap and easy. In the same way, dioceses should cr seek creative ways for inner city parishes to remain open, even when the finances would argue otherwise. And here, there's a nice story you may know of uh, Our Lady of the Angels here in Chicago which was in the worst part of town. Gunshots every night, murders all the time. This is the worst part of Chicago. The prisoners were gone, or it was so small, they closed it 15 years ago. And then Cardinal George and a crazy Franciscan came and reopened this church to be a light in the midst of darkness. And they're doing all kinds of good things there, even though it makes no sense financially. It's not, it's not a good idea financially, but it is a good idea as Christians. A church for the poor should not look impoverished. It is one of the few public buildings that those without status or money are always welcome to enter. Think about it. The poor may not often visit the art museum, the symphony hall, or the stately hotel. However, a worthy church can give the poor the experience of art, fine music, and nobility that the rich and the middle class are happy to pay for. And in this way, the church acknowledges that high culture is not just for the wealthy, but it's even for those who have nothing. And of course, this means that we shouldn't be charging people to enter churches, which is what they've been doing in Europe lately. We shouldn't charge people to go enter churches, unless, of course, they're the top 1%. <clears throat> this is Saint-Denis, the first Gothic uh, cathedrals in France, built by Abbot Suger. Abbot Suger probably had it right when he rebuilt Saint-Denis and invested in beautiful vessels, altars, and statues to draw the gaze of the common folk towards the mysteries of faith. People say, oh, he loved beautiful things, and he spent all this money and gems and all this crazy stuff. And he talks all about it's for the common people to come, and they love these things. And again, these are things for them. They cannot own them, but they can own them as part of the church, as part of... And it, it gives them an intimation of the heavenly realities. So a church for the poor is not only for the poor. It is for all, both rich and poor, proud and humble. I'd like to end with this thought. Are there iconographical elements that might draw the needy and inspire others to give? How do we inspire people to give? How do we inspire the poor? Perhaps we need more images of poverty in our churches. Poverty in the lives of the holy saints, such as Francis, Dominic, Mother Teresa, and many others. Here you see St. Francis giving his cloak to a poor man. Along with these, a church for the poor should have murals, stained glass, side altars, portraying the centrality of poverty in the life of Christ. 
The king is born in a stable. His family must immigrate to a foreign land to survive. He displays compassion for the poor, the leper, the widow, and the mother. And the children, remember that? Let the little children come to me. He's talking about college students. Let the little college students come to me. He raises the dead. He heals the sick. Jesus lives as a mendicant, reliant on the generosity of others for food and lodging. And he takes food and lodging even from priests and tax collectors, even from sinners. He introduces many parables, like the widow's mite or the prodigal son, that speak powerfully to all those in hunger and poverty. So how do we do an architecture for the poor? Let's work together and figure out some ways. Thank you very much. That'd be great. That'd be fantastic. Yes. For the poor, sure. So in the round, and you're talking about in the round like we all sit around in a circle. Yeah. Yes, because from earliest times, we have churches, baptistries, and shrines, usually built over the grave of a, of a, of a saint, that are circular, octagonal, and so on. But in most situations, the focus is not the center. It's, it's at the end. It's, it's in a direction. So... Um, uh, there's a fellow you may know, uh, uh, used to be called Cardinal Ratzinger, wrote this great uh, uh, text about how when we, uh, when we, at church, when we sit around looking at ourselves, we become inward focused. And as Christians, we should be always outward focused. First at Christ, but then he sends us out. So that's his kind of explanation. And I think that's what we see, this kind of inward focusing that the theater church gives, the semicircle, and often the circular church. If we're there to worship, if we're there to meet or have a discussion, that's a different thing, of course. This is a great theater church for a lecture. Used to be your chapel, right? Other thoughts, comments? And I would think the circular church would be especially uncomfortable for the poor, uh, where you have to look at each other and you have to be present. And I, I might go there once and I might not go back. Um, I have to be part of the club, right? Next. Well, I have to say, um, I'm, uh, the government has made great strides in the last 20 years, and they do provide a lot of housing, and we need housing, and so that's fine. I'm actually more interested in what some of these private organizations do, uh, which, um, like Habitat for Humanity, or this is great group in Grand Rapids called Dwelling Place. Does that sound familiar? People know that group. And they're trying to do exactly what you're saying as a nonprofit. They're getting money from the government, I believe, but then they're allowed to spend it and build things that look like what, what, what they call market rate housing, what, what a normal family, normal working class family would be willing to buy if they could afford it. And so then they make it possible to afford it. Now, there's a couple of things about, um, I don't mean to solve the problem of low income housing, but there's a couple of things about good architecture that happen. One, if it's built well, um, it will last longer. So that's a good investment. Costs more money up front, but it lasts longer. Uh, number two, this is very interesting. They found this in elementary schools, that if you build cinder block walls in the, in, the, in the elementary schools or in the high schools, people treat them like cinder block walls. They beat them up, and they draw on them and do stuff like that. But if you use nice materials, if you use wood paneling and other things like that, people actually treat them better. So again, you give people nice things like... Uh, Dorothy Day giving the diamond to the bag lady, they appreciate it. They will treat it more uh, uh, respectfully. So I would apply that to housing, too, that if we give people nicer things that they can value, they may actually treat it better and they may actually take better care of it than they would with something that looks like, a, like housing. 
that's a great discussion and a big one. And again, I think that what they're doing in this neck of the woods, uh, uh, it, I'm, you're probably doing good things in Holland. Are you? What are you doing in Holland for housing? That's good. Tell me about it. Yes. Great. Yes. Yes. Yeah, you want to live in one of those houses. And it's a historic home that they're fixing up. It doesn't look like housing. That's one of the biggest problems is it looks like housing. In South Bend, you drive down the streets, and you can tell right away that that one's a housing. These might be poor people next to it, but this guy's housing, and ugh, it might be brand new. And uh, we have to, that's, part, that's the architect's fault in some ways. It's cost, but it's also the architects. We're not very good. We need to get our act together. Yeah. It's, it's a whole different mindset, right? It's a whole different mindset. We have to have the mindset of St. Francis or of uh, Don Bosco. I love him. He's one of my heroes because he took care of the poorest of the poor little boys in Torino, and it was, a, it was a terrible time in the 19th century in Torino. Lots of orphans, lots of boys on the street. Essentially, they'd be, today they'd be doing drugs. In those days, they were just like, you know, stealing, gambling, you know, stuff like that. No, no big deal. Um, and uh, they, they wanted to build solid, good places for their, for their people. Um, like to me, like the school, the school, the private schools is a great example that we need to, why are we doing this? We're not doing this for, um, to be financially as viable as the, the suburban school. We're doing this to, to educate, to save souls, to catechize, to evangelize. We're doing it for all those reasons. And you can't put a price tag on that. So obviously we need to come around to that. That's a, that's an idea that we haven't, um, that we've lost in America. But I would claim that we had it in previous generations. This is not contrary to American Christianity. I wouldn't say that. I would say that American Christianity was pretty good at these things in the past, and we're just, we're, we've gotten comfortable and, um, or, or we've gotten weak or whatever doing it. And, and so, I don't, I, don't, I don't have a great answer for that. Yes, more? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Sure. To renovate. To improve. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I've I've had the misfortune, no, the honor to work on a couple of theater churches. And um, we do try to fix them up. So yeah, it can be done, it can be done. But they'll never be as good as if we imploded it and started from scratch, which is what you should do. But again, like you're saying, there's, there's money and people have money and you do what you can. So yeah, we've worked on a couple. We've made, they've been all in, the ones I've worked on are all in Texas. And uh, I don't have images, but it's kind of fun because most people see the before and then they see the after and they go, wow, really? And uh, the people of the parish go, wow, really? That's crazy. But anyway, yeah. Okay. Can you buy my book? <laughs> um, yeah. No, that's great. Uh, the transition. Um, so there are a couple of things. Um, first, let's blame the architects because they were promoting it. Uh, before the churches adopted it, okay? Uh, the churches would like you to think it was the church's idea, but it's really the architect's idea. And generally agnostic architects, uh, no disrespect from a Calvinist background or a low church Protestant background who were generally iconoclastic. Okay, that's fine. Doesn't mean the architecture has to be bad, right? So, but then they embrace the machine. They embrace the machine. So then they were promoting a modernist architecture and that, uh, I think of Le Corbusier, I think of... Uh, 
um, Mies uh, van der Rohe, I think of uh, Walter Gropius. There's there three of the biggies. But there were some guys that were really into church architecture. And they tended, they started out in the, uh, in, in the European Protestant world, eventually came to the US, then later came to the Catholics in Europe, and then it came to the US. We were a little slow to adopt it. Um, so the architects were pushing it. Then you had the, the, the theologians who saw it as speaking to modern man. And their argument was, and, and all other, other intellectuals saw it as a way to speak to modern man. Again, it's that idea, modern man is a worker, Workers need this kind of place to work in. Therefore, that you know, they drive cars. Therefore, their houses should look like what? They should look like machines. You know, if I drive a car, my house doesn't look like a machine. But anyway, um, so so that's the basic that's the basic theory. And then the church uh, embraced these ideas and then kind of sugarcoated it with theological reasons. And uh, in the Catholic Church, people like to say, "Well, Vatican II happened; it all fell apart." All those crazy ideas were happening before Vatican II. It's just that Vatican II happened at that time, and then um, everybody thought, well, that's what we should be doing. So everybody threw the baby out with the bathwater, basically. Yeah. Yeah, it's a general, we are, I mean, think about America. We, we have never been wealthier, and yet our, our vision of culture is pretty low. And the buildings we're building, the fancy buildings we're building, will not last. But we're, this, is, we're, this, is like the, we're, we're like the, this is like our Roman Empire moment, right? Since 1945 till now, this is like we're the top of the pops in the whole world. And look what we've been doing. Big stuff, grand stuff, but will it last? Will people visit? Um, our cities to see uh, Trump Tower in uh, 100 years, the way they visit Venice today. Uh, I don't think it'll still be there. I don't think Trump Tower will be still around. It's the last building. So um, yes, there's a general trend and architecture is part of it. What I find interesting though, is that um, people that, um, and may, maybe I'm optimistic that the visual is a way to get some people interested in the other things. Now, some people are very musically inclined and they'll go to music, to the arts. A lot of us are visually inclined and a way to understand that, oh, my building's reverent. The building's reverent, then I need to reverent, I need to act reverently. And then the images in there are reverent. They're, you know, sacred, they're looking towards God. So, you know, maybe the music should do that too. You know, so there, I think there's a, there's a, there's a, um, a logical direction for some of us that could speak to us. And um, now this is very interesting. Um, tell me this, this is what I ask my students all the time. And I ask you all at Hope, is there any interest in, the, uh, in your, what you're familiar with in the Protestant traditions and the Calvinist tradition in beauty today? And what are you saying? Are people talking about it? Beauty, art, music, yeah, there is, isn't there? It's coming back, isn't it? Yeah, I hear a lot from Calvin College. I know I shouldn't say that here. <laughs> Sorry, oh, I blew that one. Um, I know they have a center there and so on. And um, so tell me about it, what, what's going on? Other thoughts about what you're saying as interest in the arts in the Protestant traditions? My brother-in-law goes to a big mega church outside of Cincinnati, and he lives in this very nice Georgian house um, in this beautiful suburb, and he goes to this mega church, and it looks like a fancy Walmart, okay? And uh, they have cup holders and latte and all that stuff, and it sounds great. And um, so, and he's bothered by that because he knows that he and his fellow parishioners are giving money or tithing, giving a lot of money to this church. And the church is pretty wealthy, but it doesn't look like it. It looks like a big Walmart. And the people there are middle class. And he knows furthermore, guess what? Where and what kind of house does the head minister live in? A Walmart kind of thing? Functional kind of basic thing? Oh, no. 
He lives in a really nice, big American house. So it's a little bit like King David, right? I'm living in a house of cedar, and my God is in a tent. That's the way my brother-in-law sees it. He says, well, wait a minute. I mean, your house is nice, great. But what about God's house? Shouldn't God's house be nicer than your house? So that's, what we're, that's where we are right now. And, and if people uh, think about it that way, you might, might get a second house or something. Go ahead. No, in Holland? No, I will. Yeah, very nice. Yeah, great. Thank you for doing that. Who's, do you know who's building the organ? Casavant. Yeah, great. I love organs. We are doing a huge organ, two organs at uh, Hillsdale College in Michigan, and we had this wonderful tour of the Midwest of all the new organs. Not all. We went to six top organs, and we saw Casavant, and we saw a uh, Fritz, and we saw a Fisk, and I love organs. But they make no sense financially. They are so expensive, and they uh, cost so much, and uh, people don't use them anymore, and but they sound so wonderful. What are you going to do? Well, you gotta, you got to have, have a traditional organ. If you're going to do it, you got to do it right. And a college like Hope should do that. So thank you for doing that. Yeah. 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 Does it work? Bravo. I bet they spent a pretty penny on that. But that's worth doing. You got to do it for music. Well, that's great. I'm really glad to hear about your music center. Yeah, we finally got the uh, bug for music too at Notre Dame. I mean, it is an Irish place, but we finally got the bug, and we built a big performing arts center. And now we have a big sacred music uh, program, and now we have our third great organ that we're buying. So, so it's good. Good. There's good news. There's good, a lot of good news that's happening. Only in the colleges, of course. you're right. It's a denial of our humanity. It's We accept the separation of the body and the spirit. We separate that we are both body and spirit. And um, and the material does not matter. Yeah. Or it's me- merely, you know, merely uh, something to consume, right? It's kind of consume. It's consumer architecture. And those buildings, like a Walmart, are designed to last for 15, 20 years till they make, make their, you know, make their profit. You tear them down and rebuild them. And uh, now think about this. Why did Christians historically build really solid, thick walls, long-term buildings that looked really solid? Think about it. What, what in Christianity wants permanence? Because we're pilgrims, right? We're God, Christ is coming back tomorrow. Why would you do that? Why do we do permanence? Why would Christians build permanently, historically? Not, not today, but historically. Think about it. Permanence. The permanence of our buildings expresses the permanence of our faith, the eternity of God. Now, you can't physically build an eternal building, can you? But you can, you can approximate it by building something that will last hundreds of years. It's solid. It's firm. It doesn't move. It's, it's unchangeable. That's what we used to believe. And so we, our buildings reflected our faith. And I'm talking about Christianity in general, Judaism you know, in general. Right, right. Mm. Wow, that's a big one. Yeah, I mean, um, so just just in terms of the modernist church versus the traditional church, how do they, how does it spark or, or not help that sense of community? That well, one is uh, one is identity, and you go to. Um, I think even we have a residual of this in America in New England where, you know, 
the only church that people go to is the New York Times and Latte Church, but they still like those little churches on the green. They recognize that I live in Middletown, Connecticut, and that's the symbol of Middletown. So there is identity there. And I don't go there on Sunday because what would, what would that do for me? You know. So there's identity is first, and people are very proud of that. Um, people are very proud of that in Europe as well, the great cathedrals. The question I have is, why can't we do that today? We're so wealthy, we're so smart, we have all the materials in the world, why can't we do something as good or better today? Um, but you're right, that's an excellent point, and that's worthy of a whole lecture, if somebody could give it on the architecture of community. Yes? What, what are the, does anybody know the, um, the, um, the, the details on, on storefront churches? How many storefront churches we have in America that, that crop up every year? Do you know, does anybody know that? Has anybody studied that? It's fascinating how many store, how small they are, how they crop up, how short they live. They crop up in the inner cities, they disappear. Um, I mean, obviously there's, there's a lot of good there, but they don't last. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't. I don't have an. I don't have an answer for that. But uh, um, it's 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 what you're saying. It's the practical. It's how much are we willing to invest, and how much can we invest? And um, for some of us, it's more attractive to send our money to Africa or South America, uh, which maybe that's where it really is needed. But we do have needs right here, and um, it would be good to do that as well. Well, you're asking, you guys, this is a really smart place. You're asking me way too hard questions. I wouldn't get these questions from other colleges. Like that one over, you know, in Grand Rapids, they would never ask this kind of stuff. Go ahead. That's good. That's good. Yeah, we want people to feel at home and uh, not to uh, take off their shoes and put their feet up. But yeah, um, no, I, I think I think I actually think that beautiful traditional architecture made out of nice materials, natural materials, uh, is more human. It's more natural. Most of us think that na nature is more connected to us than man-made. Maybe not, but historically we thought that. And then the next step is taking that proper shapes that are, uh, do you know this about studying? If you want to study a, um, do your math or science study, you go into a small cubicle or small room where you can focus on the numbers and get them right. But if you want to come up with a great theory of, uh, for your, uh, your um, essay on Moby Dick, you go into a big room like this, you're, you're searching for big ideas. We know this, we know that big rooms foster big ideas Smaller rooms help us to zoom in on the details, which you need to do. You need, to, you need both, right? And so the church is historically a place of the big ideas, right? God, uh, the ineffable, the spirit. And so uh, that's one thing. But even within our great churches, you have other little spots, little more intimate places that are more dark. And you might want, not want to go there, but she might, and he might. And then images... Now, this is, the, this, is the, this is the divide between Catholicism and the uh, Reformed tradition, is, is the figurative image. Figurative image is something that speaks to people. Now, it might speak to you outside of church, but in church you're uncomfortable with that because you've been told that that's idolatry. But to the average impoverished person or the person that hasn't been educated well like that, the image speaks to them. So images, also I think that these beautiful carvings and things, that's very human, like a hand made that. It's, it's natural, right, it's nature. 
of leaves and ivy, and it's stylized. So it's man-made, but it's based on God's creation. So things, images of creation are also things that speak to people. And I'm always looking for, when we design a church, I want to design it for everybody, everybody in this room, that everybody could find something there that they would like. You might not, but that would be my goal. So it's not just one thing. It's many things. And what might speak to you might not speak to her and vice versa. And so a church that is more, uh, less monovalent, more, has more variety in it, can be good without being um, chaotic. It's not meant to be, you know, schizophrenic or anything. So do we just, are we still allowed to go? Yeah. Yeah, please. Yeah. Yes. Aren't we the wealthiest we've ever been? The average, aren't, aren't the average people, aren't the number of middle class more than they've been? Aren't the millionaires more than they've been? Isn't the government taking in more money? Even per capita? Go ahead. But I'm not, I'm not, I'm not that interested in the government doing this because the government, you're right. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah, patronage. What, what, now, I don't think this is any different today. You can choose in certain European countries that have state-sponsored churches and the government pays for all that stuff. You can choose that. That's fine. But look at the state of those churches. Look at the Christianity in Europe. It hasn't necessarily been good. I'm not saying it's been bad, but it hasn't been good. So, um, but, and, and we don't have that, and that's, that's been positive. But it is patronage. It's all of us helping out, but it's the wealthy giving. What do the wealthy give to in this country? What's number one? If you're a wealthy person in this country, what do you give your money to? You've got way extra money than you need to live on, right? You've got over 100000 in the bank. Um, that's a joke. Um, what, what do you give your money to? Politics, okay. Culture, okay, like what? Museums is the, is the church today. And then you get to be with who? When you give the money to the museum, guess who you get to be with? Other important, smart, intelligent, wealthy people. Yeah, you get to be with the right people. What else do people give money to? That's not Ameri That's not modern Americans. Yeah, we want it now. Yeah. So, so the, the answer I'm looking for, of course, is universities. Wealthy people give to universities. They give to alma mater like they never did before. There's a lot of money out there. There's, we're spending it like crazy, and we're doing good things like the music center, but we're also building football stadiums and this and that, and we put our names on them and so on and such and such, uh, which isn't inherently bad. But that money used to go, a lot of that money used to go to the church. And it used to go to build churches. So the money's out there. It's just that we have made it more attractive to give money to the museum than to the church, to alma mater for the new science building than to uh, the new cathedral. And that's, that's a problem. That's, that's a real problem. Uh, but we've got our, we're kind of mixed up, us modern Americans. Okay, one more question. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yes. 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 I think I think that's right. There's always been this tension, and there should be. And we should, we should deal with it. Um, I think it was uh, Cardinal Newman who says, should we give money to the poor 
or we should build beautiful buildings to God. We should do both. We should do both. We should find a way to do both. And I'm not going to say, you know, how much, what percentage or whatever. But again, I would say that a beautiful building that the poor can use, whether it's their school or their orphanage or their rec center or their whatever, or their church, um, benefits them as much also alongside their housing and their, their other practical needs. So it's part of the story. It's not, the church building isn't the only thing, but it's certainly the pinnacle. Um, so that's why I say, let's do both. Let's find a way to do both. And you do the school and I'll do the church and he'll do the, the unwed mother's home. And, you know, it's all part of the whole uh, of what we're called to do. So thank you very much. It's been a great time.